Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Carol the Coach, and this is Sex Addiction with Carol the Coach. You know, this is going to be an incredible show because we are going to be talking with an expert who absolutely knows everything there needs to know about what is love addiction and how is that different than sexual addiction. We are so excited to have you with us. Now, love addiction is something that's very different, and it is, um, it isn't. You know, that's the deal. Sex addiction and love addiction is uh, sometimes very much the same and sometimes very much the different. And so I decided to ask an expert who truly understands what this is all about. She has written a book called Love Addict, Sex, Romance, and Other Dangerous Drugs, and her name is Ethley Ann Vare. And she is a journalist, and she has experienced this illness on her own. She calls it affection deficit disorder. It's a quirk. We're going to find out Carol more about Coach. it. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach, and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself. Hi, I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheets, and I'm telling you, we got this intro, and it is going wacky tonight, but don't let that bother you, because we have an incredible woman who's going to be talking about her book, Love Addict, Sex, Romance, and Other Dangerous Drugs. And I got to tell you, this book is riveting. One, because she talks about herself. Two, because she talks about the research. She talks about definitions, and she talks about recovery. So, you know, where sex addiction and love addiction meet, they're sometimes very separate, and then they're sometimes very much the same thing, only different. So she's going to be talking to us about how are they different and how are they the same. And I'm telling you, Ethley and there is the expert. She has uh, researched all sorts of MRI and PET scans, and she shows us in living color that falling in love affects our brains precisely the same way as snorting cocaine or other pleasure-seeking activities. She's an author, she's a journalist, and she's a screenwriter, and she's been addicted to both. She's been addicted to coke 
and she's been addicted to love, and she survived to tell the tale with humor, honesty, and hope. And hey, isn't that what this show is about? This show is about strength, hope, and recovery. It's all about sexual addiction and all the different counterparts. So we are so happy that uh, in just a few minutes we're going to be having Epley Ann Veer on, talking about what she knows best. She absolutely is an award-winning author, and, you know, you're just going to be riveted by tonight's show. So I am excited to have her. You know, sometimes we talk really clinical. We talk about the brain. We talk about how there are three parts of the reward system in the brain, the arousal part, the satiation part, and the fantasy part. And love affects all three. As a matter of fact, we know that addiction is a brain disease. Now, there are plenty of people that will dispute that, but we know as certified sexual addictions therapists that it is clearly a brain disease. And there are certain components that make love addiction, as well as sex addiction, um, difficult to recover from. You know, if you are wanting sex, and there's an inability to stop. You've told yourself a million times, hey, I am going to stop. And then the next minute, the next hour, the next day, the next week or month, you haven't been able to stop, you might have an addiction. If there are harmful consequences, you know, uh, Eckley talks about what it is like for some addicts to go looking for love in all the wrong places, to be to get beat up, to be mugged, to be brutalized, and then to return the next day for some of the same stuff. And if it's unmanageable, you know, if you're lying to your spouse or partner, if you're coming in late to work, if you're using work to decoy yourself and and to have relationships, and it's interfering. You know, you're getting in trouble for being late. You're getting in trouble for frequent absences. It's unmanageable. And then, of course, this illness, just like sex addiction, it gets worse with time. It always escalates. It never stays the same. And if you abstain for a while, guess what? If you abstain for three months or three years, when you go back to it, you start at the same place or worse. And lastly, if you have withdrawal symptoms. You know, I had a client just recently, and, and she was really going through withdrawal. She was having tremors. She was profusely sweating. Her heart was beating. She was just unable to stop. And she also knew that she had to. And so making herself stop made her feel so uncomfortable, she referenced it to stopping her alcohol, which she had stopped years before. And let's face it, that's part of this problem. Oftentimes, people who use alcohol or drugs and sex, they combine them, they fuse them together. Dr. Patrick Carnes talks about fusing in Out of the Shadows, well, when they stop one, the other one gets worse. And that's why I've been so discouraged with so many of the treatment centers that don't want to talk about sex addiction or love addiction, but they want to they want to help people stop using drugs or alcohol. Well, so oftentimes they are fused together, and if you don't work with all three, the other one gets worse. And unfortunately, just in the same way as we felt that alcoholism was a moralistic illness back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, it's seen as a moralistic issue in 2012. People think you should just snap out of it, you should just keep it in your pants. You know, they don't understand that there needs to be some structured programming, some tools that one can use every single day to promote recovery. And so um, Eckley is going to be talking about what is that that we can be doing for recovery. You know, she says, you might be a love addict if you leave a second or third or fourth voicemail 
message before the first message is returned, just in case uh, the person didn't hear it properly or that person's shy and needs encouragement. Uh, You might have dialed wrong. I don't know about you, but I have friends that have had this experience. They call back and back and back because they believe that maybe the message was never truly delivered to the person that they're interested in. Just like with sex addiction, there's a sense of denial, and there's a sense that very clearly um, you want what you want when you want it, and when you don't get it or it doesn't come out the way it should, it ends up that you fool yourself into believing that if you just try a little bit harder with a little bit more tenacity, you'll get what you need. So you might be a love addict if you change your route home to pass your love object's house. Ethley says that you get extra points for parking outside the house and waiting or maybe standing across the street. Or if you live in a big city, you might be um, down the corner. Extra points for standing in the rain. You know, she has this humorous, humorous way of, of getting us to take a look at our behaviors. And I cannot emphasize enough that she knows what she's talking about. She's lived it. She's studied it. And she is actually working the 12th step of a 12-step program. And that is she is she is providing service to people. She's providing education because she wants to help people get a handle on their love addiction to recognize that it may be different from sex addiction and to take the proper steps to be recovered. You know, this is a home-wrecking kind of situation. And um, I recently was working with a woman who was sleeping with four or five men minimum a day. She had actually begun to, to prostitute herself because of the intrigue and the excitement she knew that it was something that she really um, could not stop on her own. And sometimes when you have this kind of issue, uh, 12-step may not be enough. Counseling with a certified sexual addictions therapist may not be enough. Uh, and so what you need to do is go inpatient and get away from your environment, take a real look at yourself, look at your childhood issues, look at the childhood wounds, and decide, is this a habit disorder that you've created? Do you have another condition, such as obsessive-compulsive disorder, that may be feeding into this problem? Or are you reenacting the trauma you may have experienced as a kid? You know, did your father walk out, and therefore you've always looked for love in all the wrong places? Were you sexually molested by somebody, physically abused? and you're righting the wrongs by taking control and charge and and being promiscuous in hopes of finding true love. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So I would highly recommend you get this book. It is available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Again, it's called Love Addict, Sex, Romance, and Other Dangerous Drugs by Ethley Ann Vare. And... um, it's probably the best book I've ever read on love addiction. I literally was on the boat this weekend um, finishing it up, and I just wanted i wanted to give it to everybody. Uh, I know a lot of women that suffer from this problem, as well as men, um, and they may be anywhere on that continuum. They may have been exploring these issues for for a few months, a few years, or a few decades. And so I can't emphasize enough, if you know somebody who has this problem, you are going to want to check in with them and recommend that they get this book. Now, I don't know how your week was. You know, we're here every Monday night at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on www.blogtalkradio.com slash sex addiction with carol the coach and you can tune in and you can listen to it live on your computer or you can go to itunes and put that in put in 
Hope, Strength, and Recovery, Sexual Addiction with Carol the Coach. And you can download all the shows. So if you miss this show, if you have to leave in the midst of it, go to iTunes, download them all, or you can always come back to www.blogtalkradio.com slash Sex Addiction with Carol the Coach and download the episode. All right. Well, I am so pleased that I am actually going to be talking to this incredible author and journalist. And, Ethley, I, I, I just can't tell you how much of a difference this book is going to make in the community of sex addiction and love addiction. How are you doing this evening? Well, that's so kind of you to say, Carol. I'm very well, thank you. And yourself? I am also doing well. You know, this show invigorates me because there's not enough information for people out there and and I'm getting more and more emails from people that are stumbling on it in iTunes or they're talking about it and they're saying, you know, this is the only show of its kind where you can get clinical, educational and biographical information on sex addiction and love addiction and and all the different recovery tools. So if you could share with us a little bit about your journey and how you learned about love addiction. Absolutely. Well, I wrote the book Love Addicts, Sex, Romance, and Other Dangerous Drugs, mostly because there were so few books on the topic out there, and the ones that were out were very much addressed to the therapeutic community or from a therapeutic point of view. And one of the things that anyone in recovery will notice more than anything is how people who are recovering are so joyful for recovery, that recovery is actually full of humor and laughter and and a recognition as we hear our own stories and we can laugh at one another's foibles. And as I always say, if, if you're a love addict or a sex addict, you've cried enough. It's time to laugh a little bit. So I tried to write this book with a sense of the humor and joy that comes out of recovery as opposed to just looking at the darkness of addiction. Um, and so it has my story in it. It has the story of some other uh, actually handsome, beautiful, and famous people in it because this is not a disease that is limited to, you know, the lonely. <laughs> people who you would think would be terribly popular it can be be love addicts, stalker, just crazy people, uh, including me. So, uh, yes, my story is that I had no idea that I was this nuts. I just thought, oh, I choose the unavailable man. Oh, I'm just looking for love in all the wrong places. Oh, I'm not really that unlike most of you. I mean, you've all had a couple of hundred lovers, right? I mean, we just we just keep kissing frogs until we find a prince. I, I had no idea that I was nuts. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Well, you know, your foreword by your roommate who really kind of admired and wished she could be like you before she figured out that you actually had a problem was just so interesting because clearly, you know, people do that. They have roommates and they appear so popular and they seem like they're doing all the right things, and yet oftentimes that's actual out-of-control behavior. And you manifested that in college. When do you think your love addiction started? Oh, I think it started when I was an infant. I just wasn't aware of it. I think that so often love addiction starts when uh, primal needs for nurturing and mirroring in infancy aren't provided by parents who are unable or unwilling to provide that. And so that gaping hole of, you know, affection deficit disorder, as I call it, develops very early and it can start manifesting as sex addiction when we become sexual or love addiction when we start getting exposed to societal images of romance. Well, absolutely, and it's that romance and fantasy sex that plays so much into what a love addict is. Now, how do you differentiate the two, sex addict versus love addict? Well, I think they're not as different as a lot of people suspect, and I also think that that's not catching the whole thing. I think there's actually three types of, of this addiction, three main types. One is the romance junkie, the fantasy junkie, the one who is intoxicated by infatuation, and is uh, this is 
the brain chemistry is fairly specific as to what um, what hormones and, and neurochemicals are being activated, and, and that's the kind of love addict I am, and it's the kind that a lot of women can identify with, uh, but men too. You know, we love the falling in love. The actual day-to-day maintaining of a relationship does not sound so interesting. Then there so it's is the, the dopamine that's produced in the right, brain. Right, that's a dopamine, and that's a phenylethylalanine rush. Um, that's that's very much the uh, anticipation of the feeling rather than the feeling itself. It's the pulling the lever of the slot machine. Then there's the relationship junkie who's a little more oxytocin motivated, maybe a little more serotonin motivated, who is into the bonding. She's she's the butt of that old joke about what do you tell a woman with two black eyes, nothing you've already tried to tell her twice. You know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's how do these people stay in these abusive relationships? Well, those are the relationship junkies. And then the third, who is motivated by, the again, dopamine, but also a lot of testosterone and a lot of adrenaline is more of the sex addict, who is more about the conquest and the chase um, and the physical release. Uh, and I think that these three things, I think that you can flip-flop between them. Um, I think that a lot of love addicts use sex to buy love, and so they're hard to tell apart. I think a lot of relationship addicts um, use, um, you know, con- use fantasy to to retreat from the relationship. So I think there's a lot of fluidity in, in these three aspects. So again, those three types are the infatuation addict, or the relationship addict or the sex addict. Right. That's how That's, you categorize them. Yeah. And you found yourself going in and out of all of them, although you tend to, your primary uh, was the infatuation addict. Yes, that that's my favorite high. Falling in love is my favorite high. I always used to say novelty is the best aphrodisiac, and there's nothing more exciting than that getting to know you, that that wonderful blush of romance. We just love that blush of romance, us uh, infatuation junkies. Well, and that makes makes you real susceptible to drugs and alcohol, does it not? Because, again, it's part of that brain chemistry. Yes. The, a, a, a functional MRI will show you that falling in love and snorting cocaine will create almost identical responses in the brain, and I was able to become horribly addicted to both of them. <laughs> I, I like them both way too much. Mm-hmm. Well, and you laugh and, and giggle at that, and obviously at some point there was a lot of shame, blame, and guilt. And at what point did you actually find to be your lowest point where you said, you know what, i got to change my life? Well, um, the line is, you know, that when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, or uh, I often hear when what it's doing to you is more than what it's doing for you. Obviously, Mm -hmm. we do drugs because they work. We fall in love because it feels good. But past a certain point, the hangover is longer than the high. And, the you know, laying on the floor in the fetal position, shaking and waiting for the phone to ring, lasts longer than the romance. Uh, you talked about, you know, my old college roommate or anyone who's looking at this kind of, you know, popular girl behavior and envying it. They're not seeing the times that she's locked in the bathroom, shuddering in physical withdrawal from cocaine or infatuation the withdrawal symptoms are identical in both and and also the withdrawal symptoms as you well know from a compulsive use of pornography is exactly the same you are shaking and quivering and sweating and vomiting as if you're coming down off heroin mm-hmm. absolutely and you know you too are a very beautiful woman and you found yourself, it didn't matter what they looked like or what they did or what they didn't do or whether they were felons or criminals. I mean, it was really all about the high, wasn't it? Well, they had to be hot. Uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for a pretty face. I lose all executive function in my brain. It's interesting. It's a physiological response. If someone's got, like, cheekbones and dimples, my reward system just shunts right past my prefrontal cortex. <laughs> I go right to being 14, and I'm just like, I'm in love. <laughs> you, know, you have shiny hair. I'm in love. <laughs> well, I get that. So that was your arousal template. It didn't matter if they were felons or criminals as long as they had high cheekbones, shiny hair, and beautiful
nipple-piercing eyes. Right. If there was a physical attraction, um, there's a, a line in the literature of um, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous that says that we confused uh, physical attraction and, uh, um, with love, and I was, and I heard that, and I thought, well, I mean, what do you mean confuse them? They're the same thing, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. That isn't that isn't that how you know you love someone when you're physically aroused by them? Isn't that the definition? I was very confused. Well, I, understandably, I'm always talking to my clients about there's healthy love and there's unhealthy love. And if you're with a juvenile delinquent who ends up driving himself off a mountain, which did actually happen to you, and you were heartsick about that relationship, that was unhealthy love. So talk a little bit about some of your relationships and what drove you to them and how desperate did you become? Well, the the anecdote that I relay in the book that really drove me to recovery was when I real when I was uh, how long would I have been sober? I was probably close to 10 years uh, clean and sober. I supposedly had a lot of recovery under my belt. And I found myself having sex with a 19-year-old. I was probably, I would have been in my 40s already. I was having sex with a 19 or 20-year-old skinhead on the floor of his bathroom recovery house. This was someone who was still counting days, had, was a junkie or maybe a tweaker. I mean, you know, nothing, nothing respectable. <laughs> right, right. No, not a respectable sort of addict alcoholic. Um, and... Just like one of my girlfriends said, why don't you just bring him home if you want to sleep with him? And I said, I I don't want him to know where I live. And just the cognitive dissonance of that is just, oh, my God, I would have sex with someone that I did not trust enough to let him know my address. How sick am I? And that's what really got me looking at the insanity of the disease. And, of course, that is, you know, one of the first steps to recovery is realizing that your behavior is, in fact, insane, that where it comes to these certain things that intoxicate you, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sugar, nicotine, or sex, that my behavior has become absolutely insane. Well, and it wasn't like you didn't have an exciting life in and of itself. I mean, you had... You had been on the E! Channel, and you had written, was it Stevie Nicks' biography? And, and Ozzy Osbournes and a number of others. Yeah, and I was writing for television. I was making a lot of money. I was on TV. I was a radio DJ. I had a glamorous life. Um, and a lot of times people are so excited by the, they say, how did you manage to make love to that many men? And I would say, it's really not tough. Men are pretty much always happy to sleep with you. <laughs> Right. You had to find the time, but if you found the time, it was easy to do. So so you were using Coke up until what age? I got sober at 35. Okay, so you got sober at 35, but you continued your sexual and love addiction. Right. You'll hear some people talk about how in the depths of their drinking and using, they would, you know, uh, have sex with people and then not remember them a a month later. I was doing that sober. I mean, men would come up to me and say, hey, it's great to see you again. Boy, did we have fun the other night. And I would go like, we did? So even though you do know that as you get more and more sober from drugs and alcohol and the clarity comes back and you do remember things and and maybe that's when the shame and blame and guilt kind of follow you around, it can easily be erased by a sexual encounter. So you were still looking to fill that void. Absolutely. And where do you think your void came from? Well, I've come to learn after years of therapy that my mother was a borderline personality um, and very narcissistic, and she just wasn't available to give me the sort of basic stability, nurturing, and mirroring that a child needs from a mother, um, that my, um, my life was full of external validation rather than spiritual fulfillment from within. And then, of course, my brain is, is you know, I came with, with cockeyed wiring. There are so many studies now that show that people who become addicts, alcoholics, and, and substance, you know, behavioral and substance addicts 
have dopamine receptors which are insensitive you know which is my my the pleasure center of my brain is hard of hearing you have to shout at it to get a response and the more you shout the more i overstimulate my reward centers the deafer they become so it's a horrible you know declining cycle Okay, well, one would almost say then that it had to do with that attachment relationship that you didn't have with your mother. What about your father? Um, My father was a depressive, clinical depressive, um, and just a general isolator at the best of times. So, And we had no extended family. My parents were both isolators. Uh, Of course, when you're brought up in this environment, you don't know that it's odd or unusual. Um, my parents were both, uh, they were big grudge holders. They had no relationships with their siblings because some resentment had, you know, followed them for, for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and, again, I didn't realize that any of this was odd. I also think that that's only a third of the equation. Uh, my op- opinion, backed up by a lot of research uh, as well as my own experience, is that that's the, the emotional or psychological aspect of addiction There is the physical aspect of the addiction, which is the brain chemistry we spoke about, and then there's the spiritual component um, that the old old intuitive early 12-steppers talked to about the allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind, and the malady of the spirit. I think that modern scientific research seems to be supporting that more and more. So is that where you found your spirituality in a 12-step program, or had you found that prior to? Um, generally, mostly in this 12-step program. I mean, like like any other hippie kid, we all were looking for some sort of spiritual life. But what has become interesting to me is the very close connection between the neurological and the spiritual, the way meditation will affect your brain in the same way that certain behaviors can, that, um, that again, the, all these things are so intertwined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when you did the Jeff Foxworthy list of you might be a love addict if, <laughs> right. a lot of those things have occurred in most women's lives. So how does somebody know if, you know, obviously – I can't imagine a woman who doesn't check her boyfriend's horoscope or the man that she's interested in, or or for men that are love addicts, the woman that they're interested in, their horoscope. I mean, that that does seem to play a part in, in playing with a relationship. So how do you know when it's really out of control? In your estimation, does it have to do with numbers? Does it have to do with devastation in terms of your own behavior? What what are some of the keys? Well, some of the, one of the first keys is age. What's perfectly appropriate for someone at 16 or 17 or 18 is not appropriate at 36 or 37 or 38. Remember that that prefrontal cortex development happens around age 25. So if you're still short-circuiting your executive or decision-making function years after it should have been developed, you may have a problem. If you repeat it over and over again, never learning from your mistakes or never learning from the pain, um, you may have a problem. Um, If you're blind to the fact that it's causing you pain, if you're living in denial, you may have a problem. So I think a lot of it has to do with what some people call the repetition compulsion, that Mm -hmm. even though it hurts, you just keep doing it because somehow the doing of it numbs the pain of the last time. Boy, and in this technological world, there are so many people that do know their lover's email um, password or their voicemail password and are checking it daily, hourly, minutely. I mean, they're just, they can't stop that repetition compulsion that you were talking about. Um, So you say if you... um, you know your lover's email password or voicemail password, you might be an addict. Or if you've read your lover's email or listened to their voicemail over and over again, you might be an addict. Or if you've read your lover's journal, if you've checked your lover's underwear, if if it hurts a little when you learn that an attractive person, even a person you don't actually know, has gotten married or engaged to someone who is not you, you may be an addict because you're constantly comparing, aren't you? 
Um, right, and and thinking about that. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a certain narcissism uh, that I think is also involved in love addiction, where we really, you know, I, I don't call it affection deficit disorder for nothing. It's like we we need we need more, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we need more. I don't care if it's chocolate or drinks or or attention. We need more, and so. Everyone has to love me. <laughs> it's just like, no, Brad Pitt, what do you mean you're going to marry Angelina Jolie? I'm right here. <laughs> right, right. And then you stipulate that you may be a love addict if you work in a job that requires partial nudity. And you actually indeed did do that. Oh, yeah. So, I, I used to be a topless dancer. I loved the attention. I thought I was doing it for the money, but really I loved the attention. But how in the world did you have the confidence or the where for all to even make that um, leap? I mean, I don't know a lot of women that would actually move into that arena. So what was it about you and your attention and affection disorder that really took you to that next level? Um, actually, it seemed very easy to fall into, so maybe those of us who are addicts are broadcasting on some wavelength that gets picked up. You know how a drug addict will tell you that they can walk into any town and they will find the people who are doing drugs? I think mm-hmm. it's a lot with the sex and love addicts, too. We we broadcast on a wavelength and like attracts like. I mean, I was in college. Um, there weren't a lot of jobs around. Someone offered me a job uh, tending bar uh, in a you know, in uh, hot pants and a bikini top, and then someone connected with the bar said, "I can get you more money if you want to dance dance over at this bar in a you know in a g-string," and it just you know it just didn't seem odd at all. And so again, you you stayed in that heightened state of denial, saying, "Well, I'm doing it for the money," but really it was for the affection. Right, because I wanted to be seen as a sexual being, because it felt like. Um, a love addict, well, actually a lot of women, but especially a love addict, will confuse desire with love. You know, and that's partially because, well, if I'm desiring you, I feel like I love you because I don't know about the other love addicts who are listening, but I could fall in love with anybody. I mean, if you smiled and winked at me, I was in love. So, um, So if I desire you, I love you. Therefore, if you desire me, you must love me. So by getting all of these people to nakedly desire me, it fed my need for affection. Okay, so when did you go to your first SLA group or your first SAA group? Or I, cause I, I'm not sure which one you went to first. And I wouldn't talk about it because it's not for me to break the anonymity of any 12-step group because, mm-hmm. um, you know, what if I mess up, then it's their fault. So I've been involved in 12-step groups since 1988, um, and I started becoming involved in, in the S programs in around 1998, um, and I'm, I have seen a lot of miracles happen in the various S programs. I think that they're extremely effective. And for somebody who may not know, there is, amongst uh, people that attend those groups, there is an anonymity whereby not only are they anonymous, but... They don't discuss the program because that's part of the unique and special quality is that you really need to go to an open group if you want to find out more about that. But it truly was a catalyst in your recovery. I mean, yeah, don't People you should always feel safe in all 12-step groups. Um, and as a researcher, as the author of Love Addict, I obviously spoke with a number of people who are in the 12-step groups and who have, as therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists, have worked with the 12-step groups. So I have a lot of objective uh, data that they're extremely effective, that they use the same 12 steps of recovery that were pioneered in the 1930s by Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and that um, it's a process of uh, discovery, self-discovery, of recognizing the harm that one one has done. Because so often people love that, you know, I mean, the, the, 
the image, the love addict's image is that you know he or she is clutching the ankle of someone who, and being dragged across the floor as their love object desperately tries to leave the room. I mean, there's there's such victimization. Oh, he's hurt me so badly. I'm in so much pain. This is like a chainsaw in my gut. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. We never for a minute think about the damage we might be doing to others. You know, you're in love with a married man. Oh, you poor thing. You're not getting your needs met. Now, how much time are you stealing away from his wife and children? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Well, and that certainly we know that in, as far as an addict is concerned, it is all about self-absorption. So that's a good point. It's it's also about the damage that's done to everybody involved in the in the relationship or outside of the relationship. So I, I appreciate that. And, you know, your book highlights many people that have had this illness and their own personal stories. How many stories about other people are in your book? Um, I think we ended up with about six or eight. I had some that didn't go in, and they're just really neat people. There's um, Amber Smith, the supermodel, and there's Billy McNamara, the soap opera actor, and Justin Carroll, also a soap opera actor. There's Mona Lee, a fashion designer, Susanna Brisk, a comedian, uh, Margaret Cho, also a comedian. So, you know, these are people who you wouldn't assume would have any problems. You know, Amber Smith was on the cover of 500 magazines and was stalking this guy that didn't have the time of day for her and putting herself in the most humiliating situations uh, just to try to get next to him. Her story is really powerful. Well, you know, when I saw that picture, I thought, well, that's the woman on a Dr. Drew's rehab show. And, And because she is so beautiful and captivating. And I remember her story both with Dr. Drew and on Oprah when she said that finally her sto- the, the man she stalked said, quit following me, quit stalking me, it's inappropriate, and really, really tried to get her to see that he didn't want her around. Um, and you would think, oh, how could somebody that beautiful do that to herself? But it's not about good looks. It's about that hole inside, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, when she looks at herself, she does not see the great beauty that she is. She sees the lonely, unloved seven-year-old that her daddy left, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you also highlight uh, different professionals, people that have been in the public that have some sort of sex or love addiction. And you want to highlight some of those so that people know what they can expect when they get your book, Love Addicts, Sex, Romance, and Other Dangerous Drugs. Well, of course, we all hear about the really notable ones like uh, Congressman Anthony Weiner and golfer Tiger Woods and um, Governor Elliot Spitzer. And um, one thing that uh, one thing that's interesting, or uh, actor David Duchovny, these people have all been labeled as uh, sex addicts in the press, but. Um, I think it's really interesting that Elliot Weiner, particularly, I don't think of him as a sex addict, even though he's best known for tweeting a photograph of his erection to a a woman across the country, a young woman across the country, um, because he was really looking for little romantic flirtatious hits. He was never actually having sex with these women, and, and there were a number of women. My opinion is he's a romance junkie. These were little romantic flirtations, you know, internet flirtations. And uh, the same thing, I believe that Tiger Woods was less of a sex addict, even though that's how people think of him, than he was a a romance addict because he was having affairs with these women. They were all in love with him. I think he was out there for the love, not just the sex, whereas David Duchovny was, you know, has spoken about staying up all night, you know, masturbating to pornography. That's a sex addict. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and what we know to be true is that there's really two types of sex addicts, the, the kind that have been through some sort of physical, sexual, emotional abuse, and they're reenacting the trauma, and then the addicts that already have that pregenetic disposition towards addiction and get caught up in a behavior like Internet porn and maybe combined with some sort of uh, psychiatric disorder, it becomes such a compulsion that they really can't stop. And oh. so you see some of that same stuff with love addicts, do you not? 
Um, yes, I think so. And that's interesting that you make a distinction between the more emotionally driven and the more neurologically driven, because I tend to think of them as two aspects of the disease, but you seem to feel that they're two types of the disease, and that's an interesting point of view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then at some point you said to yourself, okay, I'm going to stop Coke, but I'm going to continue with my affection disorder. And then, well, of course, I never rock- thought of it that way. I just thought I'm clean and sober, and now I'm looking for someone to love me. <laughs> well, I well, never we- thought of it as a disorder until like ten years later. <laughs> well, and we see clinically that when you stop one addiction, the other one usually gets ramped up. So it <laughs> makes sense that now, with clarity and focus, you looked even further for that that high, that infatuation high that you desired so much. Absolutely, I believe that to be true. So how does it feel to be in recovery? Tell us what that's like. Um, It's interesting because I, of course, was terrified of giving up this behavior because it was my identity. I mean, I was the hot girl, you know. What do you do if you're going to not be the hot girl? I was the cougar. Who am I if I'm not the original cougar? Who am I if if I'm not the pursuer and the strong one and the car? I mean, everything about my life was so closely identified with my sexuality, my desirability, and my my power, you know, my erotic power. So the idea of of giving that up seemed like a horrible self-denial. But then again, I realized so did giving up cocaine at the time. So did giving up smoking at the time. And yet I was so much happier you know, without them. So I just uh, took the advice of others who had been there before and, you know, followed bottom lines. One thing I'm sure that you have discovered and spoken to others about is that in similar to an eating disorder, you can't eliminate love and sex from your life like you can eliminate alcohol or cigarettes. You have to still have relationships. You want to still have a a sexual identity. So you have to find bottom lines, a black and white, this I will do, this I will not do type of behavior pattern for yourself. And for me, I said, okay, I will not date married men. I will not date men that are too much younger than me. I will not have sex on the first date. I will not have unsafe sex. I will not call men. I will wait for them to call me. I I made a list of, you know, these are the behaviors I will not do. And I found that my attitude started changing. I started being able to have relationships with men that were non-sexual. It made my work life so much more rewarding because there was never a, um undertone of intrigue in every business situation. Um, I was able to go to the supermarket and shop without having that that little, you know, that little antenna receiver on my forehead going, beep, 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 are you cute? Are you looking at me? Are you smiling at me? Do I want to meet you? Beep, beep, beep. Just, it was um, an enormous relief right from the beginning. And over time, it's given me balance. It's given me um, a sense of self-confidence that doesn't just come from, you know, my cleavage. <laughs> It's it's been an enormous uh, it's been an enormous gift. I've been married in in uh, my in sobriety. I've also been divorced, but the amazing thing is it didn't kill me. Well, and you talk about that in the book that you know that was what was different in recovery when you got divorced. You you did not feel like you were going to die. You had ego strength, and you had a sense of who you were, and that's what's kind of missing when you're that sexual being playing up your sexuality for the affection. Right, because we're defined by the person on our arm. I, I of myself am worth nothing, but if I'm with hot guy or successful guy or rich guy, then obviously I have value. Mm-hmm. So at any point did anybody ask you to stop stalking them? <laughs> um, I Let me see. Yeah, probably a, a few. <laughs> uh-huh. Probably a few. I, I was never as uh, committed a stalker as, as Amber was. <laughs> Amber. Well, but but 
but that could have been on your list. You know, one of the things that Patrick Carnes talks about are those three circles, the outer circle, which are the healthy behaviors, the middle circle, which will likely be a slippery slope and may get you into trouble, and then the absolute inner circle, which, of course, are those behaviors you are avoiding and and celibate from. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, what would be, I'm not going to date someone 15 years my junior, you know, mm-hmm. would that be would that be middle circle behavior? Or well, that's the bottom line for me, and and I work with black and white, you know, bottom lines rather than the three circles because mm-hmm. it's easier for me to have an absolute cutoff. It's like drinking, not drinking, smoking, not smoking. The cleaner I can make it, the better off I am. So I have an absolute cutoff, and it is right around fifteen years. It's a formula based on my age but it's basically around 15 years and it's a cutoff if you're this age i can date you if you're two months younger i can't date you it's an absolute cutoff um and the same thing with uh, i do not call men if it so i can't stalk you know if if it's not if i'm not returning a call or it's not a totally totally non-gendered business call i do not call men period um uh and so these things it makes it pretty easy um, because I know what my sobriety is. I also have another one that I can never be perfect with. This is more of a top-line goal, which mm-hmm. is uh, always remaining in the present. Um, as, as, as I put it, never have conversations with people who aren't in the room at the time. <laughs> because, oh, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, love addicts, and I'm sure sex addicts as well. Well, I know sex addicts as well because I've dated enough of them. Um, we're always um, re-scripting conversations we've had Oh, if I'd said this, then he would have said that, and then I would have been able to say this, and then we'd still be together. Or, oh, he's going to ask me out, and he's going to say this, and I'm going to be wearing that, and we're going to go here, and it's going to be like this. And with the male sex addicts, they're looking at you, they're seeing you naked, they're having sex with you. I mean, none of it is in the present. And so I'm always pulling my little balloon of a brain back into my skull, you know, because it, it floats off. It it loves to float off into the past or the future. Well, I get that as well as, you know, I don't know if your bottom line behavior initially required any sexual anorexia. You know, certainly we talk about abstaining from sex for a period of time to kind of cool down some of those neurocircuitry uh, signals that are constantly lighting up. Yeah. Um, I that, call it the be... pa- the palate cleanser. Yeah, I I put myself on and I recommend that other people do a 30-day no masturbation. No, even if that's not your repetition compulsion, at right. least do a 30 days no masturbation, no pornography, no sex, no, you know, like 30 days of total abstinence celibacy just to reset the thermostat. Mm, that makes total sense. Now what made you decide to write the book? Because, I mean, this was very courageous of you, despite the fact that it's humorous, it's an easy read. I read it in two days. I mean, <laughs> I, it was just, it, it, talk about compulsion. It was just so entertaining, and it was, and yet you just do such a great job of interspersing humor with education about brain chemistry and about neurochemicals. I mean, so it was just, it was fascinating the way you interwove the the different components to what love addiction is all about. What made you decide to write it? Well, thank you for those nice words. And what made me want to write it is because I would, as I discovered some of these things about myself and about this disease, I would tell people, tell my friends, and they would say, oh, you really need to write about this, Ethley. So I finally sat down and I started writing a blog, um, which is called Affection Deficit Disorder. That's where you'll find it online, affectiondeficitdisorder.com. Um, and every, every week or so I would do an entry about some of the aspects of this disease, like the self-test or like, you know, um, just this, you know, learning about the neurochemistry or the, uh, you know, whatever the latest discoveries in meditation and brain chemistry or just stupid behavior that I realized I was doing. I started writing these blogs, and they became more and more popular, and so many people said, this needs to be a book, this needs to be a book. So finally I had my attorney, and I, I'd been published before. I mean, I'm a writer by trade, that's what I do. Um, uh, my um, my 
lawyer, you know, got in touch with an agent who was very interested in uh, shopping it, and it ended up going to HCI, who were known for their recovery-oriented books. They they published John Bradshaw's books and Patrick Carnes' books, and mm-hmm. I think they do do I think they do P. Melody, um, as well as the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Oh, they do they do a lot of books about recovery, and they were delighted with the book, and they published it in uh, September of uh, of eleven. Wow! So this book has really only been out for less than a year. Yeah, well, less than six months, actually, yeah. And are you doing a speaking circuit? Um, I'm doing some. I've been asked to do some workshops for uh, actual addiction counselors. I spoke in January, was it, in Las Vegas at the um, Addiction Advances in Counseling Seminar for Addiction Counselors, and that was really interesting, and I really enjoyed doing it because a lot of people, unlike yourself, (laughs) who really look at these behavioral or process addictions as part of addiction and recovery, a lot of people work with substance abusers and don't look at their sexual behavior or their romantic behavior. And as you mentioned, it's so easy to transfer addictions. You can get someone off a substance and leave them in worse pain than ever because they, like me, or they're not snorting coke, but they're still locked in the bathroom huddled up on the floor in pain. You know, only this time it's over some guy. So educating the addiction counselors about the existence of love addiction offering them some red flags on how to spot it and offering them some ideas on how to arrest it, I I found it to be very helpful. Yeah, I think we're the pioneers right now of these kind of relationship and process disorders because there just isn't enough information. And it's still really seen as immoral behavior as opposed to any kind of brain addiction. So I just applaud you 100%. Again, the book is Love Addict, Sex, Romance, and Other Dangerous Drugs. You are athlete and there, and that's V-A-R-E. People can get your book through um, Amazon as well as, is it Barnes & Noble? Yes, Barnes & Noble has it. iBooks has it as, a, as an electronic book. And even actual bookstores have it. <laughs> Woohoo. And tell us, if they wanted to contact you directly, how would they do that? Oh, I keep uh, an email just for people to just to talk about this subject. It's called Talk to Ethley, and Ethley spells E-T-H-L-I-E. So talk to Ethley at gmail.com. Oh, there's also a YouTube channel, by the way, for Love Addict Book, and mm. it has me talking, uh, you know, little videos about me talking about aspects of love addiction and their um, uh, love addict book uh, tweets. There's a Twitter uh, page for love addict underscore book, and there's a Facebook page for love addict book. So as a community, we can all keep a dialogue going and um, address this and find one another and give one another support. Well, and for the partners of Love Addicts, it's a phenomenal resource to use and to share with with people. So, again, Ethley Ann Vare, thank you so much for this book, your contribution, and your sense of humor. I I really appreciate it. I encourage everybody to go out and get the book and continued success. Oh, thank you, Carol. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. All right. You have a great night. And you. Okay. You know, I can't emphasize, I've been reading books for the past mm, probably eight years on love addiction and sex addiction and the works of Ann Wilson Schaaf. And, you know, obviously uh, Stephanie Carnes talks a lot about this uh, significant disorder. Is you know, And I, there is no better book right now available than Epley's book because it's so readable and it's so humanistic. So I highly recommend that my listeners go out and read that book. And next week we have an incredible expert on. Uh, we're going to be doing a lot of work in the next month on different uh, aspects of sexual addiction. And next week we have Shireen on who's going to talk about how her work with music has really helped the community 
of Sex Addicts. So please come back, as I always say, at the end of each show. There will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll see you next week. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.